Slightly unbalanced, we are still queer as folk. I'm Patrick Randall. And I'm Matt Dominguez. Today, we are talking about episode 9 of season 5, and it's called Anything in Common. It first aired in the U.S. on July 10th, 2005. It was written by Brad Fraser, his seventh of eight episodes. He also produced 14 episodes of the show and was the story editor for another 14 episodes. Anything in Common was directed by Queer as Folk veteran David Wellington. This is his seventh of eight episodes. He directed season two's Wherever That Dream May Lead You. That was the episode that was musically bookended by the Drag King troupe. It's also the moment that Michael decided to buy his comic shop. I think we like that episode. Yes, I was particularly a fan of the bookending. Uh, Here is the synopsis of Anything in Common. Brian and Michael continue to quarrel over Michael's new life, ending in Michael calling it quits and moving on from Brian. In a quasi-related runner, Ben and Michael come to terms with what it means to publicly fight against Proposition 14. And we meet Jennifer Taylor's new boyfriend, a hunky science teacher named Tuck, who whisks her away on a motorcycle. (laughs) Go, Jennifer. (laughs) Do you think Sherry Miller actually got onto that motorcycle? Do you think that was her? Oh, yeah. No stunt woman? No, she's I I feel like she's the kind of Canadian who would have hopped onto the motorcycle. No problem. Yeah, that was great. Can't wait to talk about it. Mm. Tired of fucking everything that moves. Ted's search for a husband leads him to a Jewish mixer where he meets a hot as fuck urologist who, while examining Ted's penis, discovers that Ted is not Jewish. Okay, Melanie and Lindsay beat the crap out of each other before Melanie appears to force herself on Lindsay. Finally, Drew Boyd comes out on live TV. There was a lot packed into this episode. Mm -hmm. There was one main story, and I counted five runners. There's a lot that Conan Littman needed to get established leading into the next episode. And we've seen this before from this pair, where something big is going to happen or the season's going to end. So the episode right before it features every single character in great big stories. Yes, we got to set up everybody because everybody has to have a story. I found it really hard to break down these stories. So, yes, uh, a story we'll give to Brian. So Debbie visits Brian at the loft. I don't like the way you've been treating Michael. What the fuck out? You've been on his case ever since he and Ben bought that house together. He didn't just buy a house. He bought the slicer and the dicer, the Ginsu knives, the abs roller, the juicer. Top 100 hits of the 60s, not available at any store. In short, every lie, every con, every color, shape, and size of bullshit the straight world has to offer. He fell in love. He got married. He had a family. Well, everything he's ever wanted since he was a kid. This is what, like the fourth time that Debbie comes over to the loft to set Brian straight about something? At this point, I think they have won a season. Oh, that's a good point. I think you're right. So Michael and Brian are still fighting? I had honestly forgotten. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, I will say, I mean, what I appreciate is that Deb... Turns out to give some excellent wisdom and pot and pasta, which is great. (laughs) And I I like that she says, you know, that here is an opportunity. Like, it's okay that Michael has moved on from you. You can't hold that against him. Uh, Groundbreaking. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Again, won a season. Their fight, their fight's lasting longer than Melanie, Lindsay and Michael lawyering up on each other. And digging up all that dirt on each other and saying it publicly. Yeah. Uh, for once, Michael correctly categorized his feelings about Brian, though. I don't know. I, I kind of liked the clarity that he had. I, it was kind of lingering and it was holding a grudge, but uh, okay. It, it puts some things in perspective when I think about some of my friendships 
and where you see yourself going in two different directions and whether or not that friendship can handle that change in direction. Yeah, exactly. So, and I think that's okay. You know, if you, you know, like, oh, well, this is why we became friends. And then if you see it's that much harder to maintain something other than what initially bonded you, then yeah, I mean, much like how romantic relationships can run their course, friendships can run their course too. That's okay. It does seem like in this day and age though, there's never like a big proclamation that we are done. It just sort of fizzles <laughs> out and goes away. Well, and what's really different about now is we have social media in which we now can connect with people we knew 10, 15 years ago with one click. <laughs> and Such a curse. Uh, to be honest, yeah. <laughs> you can look, I mean, you look at some of my f- friend list that I have on, you know, certain social media websites that I really should just get rid of. And I'm like, why do you even care about anything I might share on this? Oh, you don't call your friends every now and again? Go through and thin them out? I, that's actually such, that's a great practice that I really should get into. It's very therapeutic. Because then my 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 purpose for something like that really changed. Because at first it was like, oh, I thought you were just supposed to send requests to every person that you went to high school with. Because that's, that's when they started to appear. It was when I was in high school. And I thought that was the whole point of it. But then I realized, oh, I actually never talked to you or sometimes you people were real dicks to me. Why do I even care? (laughs) Unfriend. (laughs) Right. Or, oh, I see you decided to stay there. Block. (laughs) Okay, cool. Have fun. I ain't got the time. There's something about Brian still being on his anti-Michael marriage kick that I'm struggling about. Why does Brian at all give a shit about Michael's new married life? He didn't go this far when Michael was married to Dr. David Cameron and moved into his architecturally perfect mid-century modern house and then even left the city entirely. That's right. Ben and Michael are still right there. They're not far from you. You can still maintain whatever you want. They just so happen to have made it legal, and that's what pisses them off? Uh, yeah, I think it's everything. It's it's the fact that Michael is no longer going out with Brian. They're no longer the dynamic duo of season one. But if anything, this becomes the best of both worlds for each of them. Michael could occasionally go to Babylon. He doesn't have to be there every night. Brian could occasionally spend the evening at Michael's home, maybe on a Tuesday, slow bar night or something like that. It's like you can you can find this middle ground. It doesn't have to be all or nothing, right? Yes, exactly. I, I don't know if it's because they want to keep Brian as this sort of Peter Pan character. I'm tired of that phrase. Brian had some pretty meaningless lines at Justin's art show. I wasn't sure you'd come. Neither was I. That it? You like it? If I did, would that make it good? No. Would it make you like it more or less? No. Would it make you rich? No. Then why do you give a shit what I think? It was nice to see the two of them together, but they should still be in that awkward phase, right? Justin was presented as just kind of being over with Brian, and I'm not sure that that's really the case, but... Well, I was also very surprised to see Brian there because, yeah, like you said, nothing really meaningful happened. Well, he was only there to get him into the same room as Michael. But then, like, I guess like, they found some, he said it's been a while since he f- fucked an artsy type and then he just went off. And you're like, well, OK, what was the point of this? <laughs> yeah. Why, why didn't he like go try to pick up Tuck? <laughs> We'll talk about right. with Jennifer in a little bit. That would have been great. Because he looks a little too much like Brandon. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. Brian had a nice uh, air quotes apology to Michael, but it wasn't an apology. It was more like he was giving him his blessing to be whomever he wants to be. It's like, oh, gee, thanks. Uh, as if he had to do that in the first place. <laughs> well, I think that is Brian's version of an apology. What's that supposed to be, an apology? I mean, aren't you afraid I'm going to infect you? Look, just because we've been friends our whole lives doesn't mean we have to stay friends. Especially since we no longer have anything in common. So why don't we just admit that the Brian-Mikey show is over and get on with our lives. Uh, yeah. Fuck off and everything you wrote in on, I'm done. Bye. Yeah, I just, I thought it was weird that Michael had to put that kind of a point on it. It's it's a big leap to make. We can t- We can discuss for hours if brian's apology quote unquote was legitimate or was 
real. And I think that's, or I think that was probably the most genuine version of an apology you were ever going to get from Brian. So I was really surprised to hear Michael really act like kind of a cunt. Yeah. (laughs) Be like, no, screw you. I'm done. It's one of those things where do you actually have to say the word? I'm sorry. No. Well, we had an episode of this podcast a while ago where I think I was making a strong case that you actually do have to say that. But here I thought, I don't know, Brian gave an explanation. It's like, what more do you want? <laughs> what do you want, cash yeah, or no, what? I, I, <laughs> I think I remember that. Because, yeah, I, I, I think we put so much stock in that word. And like, But if your actions and you are genuine in your nature, then I'm like, okay, then that's what you mean. Cool. Mm. Great, I'll move on. But it, like, and then some people actually just say, I'm sorry. And then people are like, well, that's it. And it's like, right. you know, <laughs> I'm not going to put on a whole song and dance I'm going to share with you my genuine feelings and do my best to and give what, submit it all what in writing. Want. And if you can't take that, then tough. You, you're you're you are then really looking for some sort of revenge, or you are looking to somehow be degrading. And I'm not into that. I don't have time for that. The ending scene uh, of the entire episode was kind of interesting. I guess my first question is, what on earth was that music? It was it was Hebrew, right? I don't know. It was a song called Sacred Stones by uh, a singer called Sheila Chandra. She's English, but she's actually Indian. Oh, because I could have sworn I heard the word Elohim in there, which is Hebrew. So I was, I had assumed that was somehow tied into Ted's story. (laughs) Like, well, like a tiny bit. Mm. But then I also thought it was really actually setting us up for what uh, happens in the next episode. Because it felt like, oh, there is something big about to happen. Because it was very eerie. Well, then the there were three songs to end the episode. There was this one, and then there was a like more typical club song, and then there was a, a piano that kind of calmed the episode down and gave it this ponderous feel. So it was a it's a weird one two three punch of music. When Michael appeared, I absolutely knew that that was Brian's imagination. I'm like, there's no way that this is actually real but but it worked for me i I like seeing brian make that realization that apologizing to michael probably could have resolved the entire problem that was exactly what we had been talking about with the brandon storyline all this time was to have something like that (laughs) (laughs) more of brian's imagination (laughs) and yeah you're right that worked for me so like when it was revealed that he wasn't there i actually was genuinely surprised i was like oh yeah, once again, we called it a out a couple episodes in advance. We're like, we need to see more yes. of this in Brian's head. And then, bam, it happens. And then there it is. <laughs> we'll be back with more Still Queer's Folk. We're almost done with Liberty Avenue, but this fall, we're back. Back where it all started. The original Queer's Folk, UK. I was just a shag. I knew that. I suppose I fell in love a bit. Like you do. I thought, I'll never see him again. How was I to know? Stuart Allen Jones. Six months later, he was begging me to stay. Still queer as fuck. They told you about that, did they? Slowly. Can I see you again? You can see me now. Nathan, where have you been? Piss off. Oh, now, your little friend. I could meet you tonight. God knows where I'll be tonight, you know? I could be anywhere. I could be an Ipswich. Come on, boys, give us a kiss. I'll give you a good fuck, you tiger little virgin. You won't be laughing then. We're going now, Stuart. Just shut your face and drive. Can I see you, though? Oh, you'll see me, all right. You can't miss me. Say a fond goodbye to Brian, Michael, and Justin, and meet Stuart, Vince, and Nathan. Join us starting December 4th as we take on Queer as Folk UK and 10 special episodes of Still Queer as Folk. Our first runner of the night is uh, Ben, Michael, and Proposition 14. And this runner starts out with a whole bunch of banging in the kitchen. Like literally, like, uh, they it. I don't remember the last time that we saw those two fuck. Do you? 
No. I think it's I was, been a while. I, I literally wrote down that we have not seen this in a while. Yeah. And I just assumed that they were just christening their kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, they went. Feel good, baby. Add it. Like, that was hot. Yeah, and then the bell rings, and then um, Michael has to let everybody know I'm coming. I'm coming. Uh, so this Proposition 14 canvassers are at the door, and I noticed that when Michael was talking to them, he said that he has a daughter and a son. That surprised me, since he was more than happy to see Hunter exit. <laughs> now he's like, oh, no, I have yeah, a son. He was very much like, uh, who's Hunter again? I'm sorry. So Michael's shop uh, gets a brick in the window. Uh, did you notice that he willingly dragged his daughter into danger, into the comic shop with a smashed window and the alarm going off? It's like, what if the perp was still there? <laughs> he didn't know who was. I mean, I grant, I granted he was probably in that situation of I have to either bring my child in here or leave her out on the sidewalk. Oh, no, like, you both least... stay on the sidewalk and you call Carl Horvath from the nearest payphone. You don't like yes, you call the wheel the child in there. <laughs> it's like pushing the child ahead of you. And the fact that that many people were just walking by. Yeah, right. They're all just like, meh. <laughs> and thought nothing of that. I was like, mm, no, like eat. Someone would have been like, oh, my God, what what happened? Somebody would grab a comic book at least. Like, oh, free comic. Right. Instead, everyone was just like, as if it was only in Michael's mind. There was no sign of JR until Carl and Debbie showed up. And then we saw JR. So that moment of like, what happened to baby JR? Unknown. This is uh, the second time that Michael has been pushing around an empty stroller that we're supposed to believe has his infant child in it that he fought tooth and nail over. But then... <laughs> It's <laughs> just something really just reckless. Or, <laughs> so Michael starts getting paranoid over Proposition 14 and his comic store getting a brick through it and seeing the the preacher man outside railing for Proposition 14. I think his paranoia here is really more about the next episode. In this episode, it doesn't make much sense, though. It's like, okay, you got a brick through the window. Why... Are you imagining like all this happening? And well, and right before he got to his store, he was walking with Melanie and she was t recounting a story, I think, about. Yeah, the Holocaust. Uh, the Holocaust. That's enough to and like so put Michael that, into was, like, this. So then when he then yeah, to speak to his paranoia, I was like, so because of Melanie's story of what went on in the Holocaust, like that's where his mind immediately went to. I was like, yeah, that was a little strong. Yeah. Big jump. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a jump. To go through like i understand being concerned for your business but also knowing that we are in a very contested you know legal battle that is coming up but to then say like that's what's going to lead to people being round up at least at this point i was having a struggle with but then again michael always works out in the extremes well it's enough for him to tear down the sign that ben had put up in the yard yeah, i just put one of those on the front lawn yeah and i just took it out what? Aren't we doing enough? Canvassing and volunteering, do we really need this too? It's a sign of solidarity. Support, besides practically everyone's house on the block has one, including Eli and Monty's. Good for them. They can also wear pink triangles on their sleeves. And then at the end of this uh, particular runner, he's back out there putting the sign in place. So he, he kind of flipped around, like really quickly. He went from being Mr. Anti-Prop 14, wearing the button and yelling and screaming about it to backing away from it to then back on it and putting the sign back up. I think Michael can never make up his own mind. <laughs> so, I think if someone had convinced him that Prop 14 was actually good for us, he probably would have gone and said, like, actually, it's pretty great. So, Well, this is actually a, a, the quintessential runner because this is all set up for the next episode. And that's really the only reason why this story mm -hmm. is here. Let's talk about Jennifer and uh, yet another straight story in a queer show, which is unfortunate because I love this story. <laughs> I just huge fan. I'm huge just tired fan. of straight stories. There's like more straight relationships going on than gay relationships at this point. Well, yeah, because we can see how they fall apart. The gay relationships. <laughs> yeah, they, <can't laughs> they break trusted. everybody up. <laughs> <laughs> so Jennifer and Justin are walking down the street and all of a sudden some hot dude on a motorbike rolls up and Jennifer just hops on. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> Takes off his helmet. The hair just tosses around. I was like, ugh. I wish we'd been able to convince more people. Well, the important thing is we keep on trying, huh? Oh. Uh. My wife? No. We, we just got here ourselves. 
Who's he? We'll talk later. What? Hi. And Justin's just like, what the fuck is happening here? <laughs> I loved it. I would have loved it more if, like, if Justin had, like, shown some of initial attraction and be like, oh, who the fuck is this? What's up? How you doing? Would have been so into it. That's good because it could have been Justin thinking that, that here's a trick for him and then, you know, his mother. His <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Good for her. She deserves it. She's earned it. Love it. So uh, Jennifer and Justin uh, meet up at his art studio. Take it you don't approve. I suppose a woman of your age is allowed to have a little fling, provided it's discreet. Well, actually, um, it's, it's more than a little fling. We've been seeing each other for six months. For six months? And you never said anything? the point until I was sure it was serious. Serious? You are not serious. He's one third your age. Half. Fuck, half. He's half your age. He's still young enough to be your... I don't even want to say it. And I don't want to hear it. Especially from you. I just love these scenes with these two. Justin has managed to fill his entire studio with work on short order, but I still love that space and I, I just love the way that they're interacting in there. And we find out that the guy on the motorcycle is named Tuck. He's an eighth grade science teacher at, wait for it, Molly's school. Do you remember Molly, Justin's little sister who hasn't been mentioned since like season two? That's right, he has a sibling. <laughs> Jennifer has a reason to be around a school. <laughs> it, it's kind of funny just because we complain so much that nobody keeps the book for the show. Here they did. <laughs> It's like, oh, yeah, we need a sister. Someone went back years. Like, where is it there? Does he have a sister or a brother? Would have been cooler if it was like uh, he teaches college and he's Daphne's science teacher or something like that. <laughs> but no, you know what? No, Jennifer's earned this one. So I like I like the fact that she was able to explain like this is what he does. I mean, sure, because I could see it like first glance, your mom getting on a motorcycle with some young hot dude that you've never even heard about. Yeah, it's like, wait, who is, is, <laughs> is jarring? But then here she explains like, this is how I met him. This is what he does. So I'm like, oh, OK, so he is a, a handsome stable, well-meaning, like good with children, uh, good with children, man. Cool. Great. I would have loved it if Justin was like, lock that shit down. Because clearly he's cool with her having a, a gay son. So like, what's up? Justin is unusually catty over Jennifer dating. He hates his dad. So why does he even care? It's like his only reason is their age difference. But again, why does he care? Brian's 12 years older than Justin. So is it just because Jennifer kept it a secret? There, Yeah, there is something about how the fact that he uses language like disapproved or it has to be someone who is appropriate. And I was like, who the fuck are you, dude? You <laughs> hooked up with some guy when you were 17. So we were always talking about the legal legality of that situation. He's not a boy. And then you He's have a the man. <laughs> Please. <laughs> and then you have... You have the nerve to be pissed off that your mom scored this hot piece of beefcake? Please, fuck off. Yeah, that's why it just seems so manufactured to me. And I don't know why this needed to be there. Is it just to draw Jennifer and Justin closer together? Or I don't know. I, I, well, no, I was completely ready for Justin to be like, get all this information about what he has. And like, oh, he treats you great. This is awesome. Let me just get to know him a little more. like Because I think that is so played out where we see that the child is disapproving of the parent moving on. And I, it's tiring. I think that's just as much of a cliche. It would have been a lot more fun if he's like, Mom, you bitch, good for you. Like Some shit like that would have been a lot of fun. Yeah, at first I was going to say that the story really had no place in a queer show. But then I was like, well, if it's any other character other than Jennifer Taylor, I would suggest we stop covering it. But since it's Jennifer Taylor, I was all into this story. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, huge fan. <laughs> yeah. So also at Justin's art show, uh, Justin is suddenly like a dick to the art critic. But 
Why? I did I miss something there? Your work has a surprising intensity to it, especially for someone so young. What made you want to be an artist? It was that or be a mass murderer. <laughs> <laughs> That's very amusing. I'll be in touch. Did you hear what he said? Remember this moment. What for? He's a cunt. A very influential cunt. That's a cunt. Well, I guess because the art critic is supposed to be a dick, too. Like, it's just because of a cunt. Yeah, but I didn't know why. I, the only thing that I had was, is this anger because Jennifer has a boyfriend? Because he wasn't a dick to Corinne when uh, Melanie's date came over. I have no idea. Yeah, I didn't quite get that. It's No, I mean, I, I thought it was more... He, I, I didn't think it had anything to do with the fact that he was upset about Jennifer. I thought it was just because there seemed to be this air of condescension from the critic. Like how he he never wants to come to Pittsburgh, or like he had to be convinced to come here, and uh, and so like he was like pleasantly surprised or something by the art or some shit like that. A nice level-headed <sighs> Justin usually rolls with that. It wasn't until we had like Pink Posse Justin where he would get militant, and so like militant Justin came out. Yeah, but here you put him in a black. Put here you put him in this black turtleneck where he gets real artsy <laughs> <laughs> with the blue stripe on it. Oh my god. He was also such a dick to talk. Let me guess. You don't know art, but you know what you like. I like Magritte, Cezanne, and Johns. Mm. I did go to college. I also like your stuff. You also like my mother. Yes, I do. Don't you have one of your own? That's not why I like her. I like her because she's beautiful. Oh. Intelligent, sexy. Have you fucked her? I don't think that concerns you. As they say, 25 goes into 50 a lot more than 50 goes into 25. Except in your case. <laughs> Although to be fair, he's not quite that old, is he? She's an adult, so am I. She's free to love whoever she pleases without her child's approval. I'm her son, and I'm an adult. Okay, then act like one. I immediately liked Tuck as soon as Tuck started talking because he came across as like super intelligent, well-spoken, can roll with Justin's bullshit and he's hot and he just shuts Justin down like very politely though. Loved it. He, Justin tries to trip him up and Tucker's like, oh no, I love these artists. And he throws out like not even just the typical artists. And then he says, I did go to college. And I'm like, yes, Tucker, <laughs> yes, you did. Justin's a dropout. <laughs> <laughs> and like yeah and you can see they're just they're having this tete-a-tete and then <laughs> justin tries to claim that he's an adult and tucker just birds him and then walks away with that then act like one it was great <laughs> well written <Yeah>. scene <laughs> i was like tucker take me please on this one limited situation i will accept a straight storyline in queer as fuck because it's good <laughs> It's so good. <laughs> and I, again, like Jennifer, mwah, you mm. could not have done better. Sherry Miller. See, if that guy had been cast as Brandon, I would have understood the rivalry. At the diner later with Jennifer and Justin, uh, I love how Justin doesn't think that he was rude to talk. <laughs> He's like, all I did was ask some questions. It's like, no, you were a dick. Stop it. Do you think that Justin deliberately quoted word for word Jennifer season one or do you think that was just accidental don't you think I'm entitled to be with someone someone appropriate someone your own age uh, that's rather funny coming from you mom I was 17 you're you're my mother you should know better you know when you first started seeing Brian I admit I had trouble a lot of trouble but eventually I realized that if he made you happy, was good to you, that's all that really mattered. Well, now it's your turn. Someone appropriate, someone your own age. That's Jennifer from season one speaking about Brian. Did Justin do that on purpose? Well, no, because I think if he did that on purpose, it would show his his hypocrisy because Jennifer... Well, she called him she out on explains it. it. She, she even explains, she's like, I admit... I was not a fan of this in the beginning for a lot of reasons, but when I saw how much he actually did care for you and blah, 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 and like, yeah, she, hell, she even helped him find his new office. Why, you're going to tell me that you couldn't provide the same courtesy to 
someone who honestly has their shit a lot more together than you do <laughs> and is actually caring for your mom. And <laughs> I'm totally on Jennifer's side here. I don't know if Justin is because he is now seeing this moment of his mom moving on, even though his dad is a total douche and like they haven't been together for a, a long time. And I think there may be something to be said for what Jennifer is saying that like, yeah, there is now another man in Jennifer's life and it's not just Justin who cares about Molly, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, plus uh, Jennifer isn't exactly a, a towering presence in Justin's life the way that like Debbie is in Michael's life. So um, I just wish we could see more causality to Justin's actions here it, because some of it just doesn't make sense. It's it's like he's suddenly angry old man instead of a like hip bohemian free spirited artist with his own like working loft because Jennifer has the high ground here, right? Justin is oh, just being yeah. a little it, bitch. Yeah, it almost it almost sounds like it's Jennifer's father who was mad at her mm-hmm. for going out with a younger mm-hmm. man. We'll be back with more Still Chris Folk. cringeworthy Ted runner. So Ted Emmett and Brian are in the diner. Uh, the way it was introduced was kind of ridiculous, but I like Ted's transformation to having any guy that he wants. It's curious though that Brian isn't more pissed off over like yet another contender for Dick. Fucking Christ, Theodore. Is there anyone in this burg you haven't boned since your extreme makeover? Well, let's just say that if they don't get a fresh supply in soon, I'll be forced to move to Philadelphia. You know, I always used to wonder what it'd be like to have any guy I wanted. Now I know. Brian was so concerned about Brandon, but I think he then didn't realize that Ted then came in and became the true king right. of Liberty <laughs> Avenue. Because he was the one fucking actually everybody. Well, and the quality of guys is comparable too, right? Absolutely. So, I could have sworn it was some of the same people. Yeah, probably was. <laughs> they pass them around. So Ted comes right out and says uh, that he needs a boyfriend and surely out of all these guys, he's fucking at least one of them would be husband material. They can't all be just warm, wet holes, right? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) There's a little moment in here of Ted and Brian that I thought was really funny when Brian is showing Ted that got wood advertisement. I always get excited when Brian does ad man shit, but this ad was just hilariously terrible. And of course it's homocentric. That's all Brian does. That's all he can do. And I think there's got to come a point where we finally call out going like, you know, Brian, I don't think you're actually keeping up with trends. You're stuck in stuff that may have worked five, ten years ago. And why wouldn't they bring that in to, to the storyline of Brian is old, he's out of touch, there's people like Brandon overtaking him? Why not make this also have this hook into his professional career, too, where he's losing his edge about everything? Listen, we apparently have a season six, like, ready to go. So <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So uh, Ted's uh, going to a Jewish mixer. Uh, Ted Schmidt, shalom. Adam Bernstein, shalom. And uh, nice to meet you, too. When Ted was talking about, like, finding a mention stuff, I was like, did I miss that Ted was Jewish? <laughs> I thought Melanie was the only Jewish. And then I realized, like, oh, no, you just think that the only good men are Jewish men because they make good husbands. And that's when I was like, oh, that's where you fucked up, Ted. Well, Melanie said that they make good husbands and he should try to find one. That's what led him to the mixer. It's also how we find out that Ted is uncut. Is everything all right down there? Frankly, no. What's wrong? You're not Jewish. I never said I was. But you were at the mixer. I wanted to meet a nice Jewish guy. So did I. Did we know that already? I thought we only knew based on shadow play length. 
I, and possibly girth. Oh, yeah, I remember that when he accidentally took the Viagra or took too much Viagra. Mm, yes. But wasn't this brought up in No Brist, No Shirt, No Service, episode two, season one? I could have sworn I mean, that, was that. Years ago, but possibly. Yeah, I could have sworn that Ted made some kind of a comment. But this raises another question for me. If somebody goes to a Jewish mixer or I guess really any kind of focused event like that and meets a guy, is there sort of an obligation to mention like very early on that you're not actually a member of the group whose event you are at? Uh, Yes, but I think they were all operating under the assumption that everyone at a Jewish mixer was Jewish. Right, but isn't Ted obligated to tell the guy early on, I am not Jewish, but I'd love to have a drink with you? Absolutely, yeah. And that's how you can tell that Ted clearly does not have his foot in the Jewish community because anyone who might attend said Jewish mixer would be like, there's a very specific reason why we're going to a Jewish mixer is because they still have a very strong tie to their religion and they want to find someone of that same religion. Or ethnicity. Or ethnicity. Which is why it's like a weird question for me, which is, are you obligated to disclose that you are a visitor? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I I think he would have definitely had to have disclosed that because I would have thought that this like would have been someone like um, an event hosted by a specific like, was it was. A specific group? It was? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Then, yeah, I, I agree. I think there should have been at least like a guest list or something. I mean, like, oh, t- t- um, we're not aware that you were Jewish or something like that. Something to like hint at. Cause nobody else, nobody really said anything to him. We're like, well, you know, that's really only for Jewish people. You know, it's like, no, it's fine. Like I can see that anybody's welcome to it, but you, you're right. If you're going to that event, you're probably interested in finding your Jewish husband. And that's, <laughs> that's why I just thought it would be like good manners to say, to, to self-identify yes. as a Gentile <laughs> there. Yes, exactly. He needed to say that he was the Shiksa. That's Lindsay. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Speaking of Lindsay, um, this uh, Melanie and Lindsay runner is getting interesting, to say the least. This home separation, I don't think we've like really I've actually have seen this in practice because they keep bumping into each other and they keep doing stuff together. And they have a hard time abiding by their own rules. I don't see it as they can't stay away from each other. It, it just seems more like they forgot that they had this agreement in place and keep forgetting it. So then it really feels like they are just like living together again. Yeah. I guess we would need to see a little more living apart to have this like really stick so that it wasn't just kind of like them business as usual. Because if you think about it, not much changed. The only thing that we've seen is Lindsay in the attic one time in the scene with Brian, but for the rest of it, they're still like doing stuff together. They're in the kitchen together. They're they're paying bills. They're at the dining room, stuff like that. So yeah, then have you really truly done this separation but then again you know for dramatic purposes we probably are only seeing the times where they actually do bump into each other uh speaking of bumping into each other when uh melanie comes home from the art show late and Lindsay is waiting in the living room that was like super creepy i was like wow yeah no <laughs> wonder she went like actually jumped out of her skin for that like yeah she's like in blue lighting Lindsay was looking like that was <laughs> right. ooh, jesus You want to wake the children? I'm sure I woke the dead. You scared the fucking crap out of me. Sorry. What are you uh, sitting in the dark for? I felt like it. And then uh, something that I noticed too is that Melanie uh, is once again like really blasé about everything that she's doing away from Lindsay. You know, she's just kind of matter of fact about it. She's matter of fact about coming home at 3 a.m. because she was out doing her own thing. So... She's kind of holding up to the rules. And then Lindsay drops the bomb and says, maybe we should sell the house. This whole in-house separation isn't working. At least not for me. It's for people who are obviously more sophisticated or heartless than I am. So what do you suggest? That we sell the house. Get two separate places. Sell the house. Why should you live here while I'm in some crummy apartment? We're not selling the house. Then you move out. To me, that sounded like a great idea. I don't know if it's because I'm tired of this storyline of feuding lesbians or if it's really a good idea for them to sell the house and go their separate ways. I think it's probably a little of both. Uh, yeah, I would say it's a little of both because I, 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 
I was having such trouble trying to process Lindsay's anger because she's mad that Melanie actually ended up starting to date someone. Like the fact that she said that, oh no, no, this this arrangement's not working for me. Never has, never will. What I was like, but you you all were fine until Melanie decided to say like, oh, I guess I'm going to go on a date with someone. Oh, I kind of like her, so I'm going to keep seeing her. How is that any of your fucking business? <laughs> <laughs> Why are you holding that yeah, against her? If that's your like, rule. Did you expect her to not ever date again? Like while she lived with you or what? Like the whole point was that the only thing you are sharing right now is allegedly a child and a roof. That is it. You do not have any other emotional attachment to anybody. Don't you like it when your exes never date again? They're just like so upset and wrecked that they can't possibly love again. <laughs> I mean, it took me a little bit, but I'm totally cool with it. <laughs> I guess it depends on the circumstances of the breakup. Yes, exactly. Speaking of breaking things, I think it's always good storytelling to switch from like mental pairing to physical fights to really punctuate a scene. But sheesh, this fight, it reminded me of the two lesbians in Airplane fighting at the bar <laughs> at the beginning of the movie where they're just like tearing up the bar and throwing each other around and loved it. Uh, there, there's, did, did the writers just watch both airplanes and decide <laughs> let's make a series <laughs> because we pull up that reference a lot there was something about this that i i really had a problem with and i felt like it got a little rapey and this is the second time that Lindsay has had a sex scene where we're expected to believe that she's kind of into it but she's clearly not where she's not making happy sounds. She's making like goth me sounds. The, there is, I, I didn't understand this whole, now that they've gotten actually physically violent with one another, that's going to lead to them being turned on to fuck. That's where it reads into a little bit too much straight boy fantasy. And I, I didn't buy it and I did not like it. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the way it was written in stage. I get the idea what Frazier was going for here. But once again, it's like anytime Lindsay is having sex with somebody else, we're just left like, oh, is that good? Is that bad? Is she happy? Does she want to get away? Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just weird. There is something uh, kind of funny about that entire scene, though. Uh, Melanie has a, a depression glass candy dish that gets broken in the fight. That was kind of what precipitated their um, hookup, rape, whatever we want to call it. This, that's my mother's depression wear candy dish. That's about to get more depressed. You, give it hands to me. off me. You might be amused to know, Matt, that I actually own hundreds of pieces of depression glass. So can you explain to me what exactly that is? Depression glass? Yes. Oh, it's uh, like way back in the Depression, of course. Th these things were given away by food companies like Betty Crocker and Quaker and stuff like that. And it's it's like low-grade glass, and it's like poured glass, and so it kind of has like seams on it. It's not high-quality crystal or anything like that. My mother had a huge collection of this stuff, and some of it was my grandmother's, and so hundreds of pieces – when my mother died, I ended up with all this, and I actually pay for a storage unit to keep all this shit in. Most of it isn't especially valuable just because it's it's not crystal. It's glass. It's like Coke bottle type stuff. Uh, and it was mass market, so there's like millions and millions of pieces of it. And some of them do have a lot of value, but the only thing that this stuff has is like sentimental value to the people that own it because it's usually like handed down. Like your parents collected it or grandparents or great grandparents collected it in the great depression and they've had it ever since. And these used to sit on the dining room table. Gotcha. Okay. The interesting thing though, is I don't think that Melanie's grandparents were in the U S to collect depression glass because she was telling the story about them in the Holocaust. So how did she get Which this? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> I'll show you my depression glass collection sometime. It's very okay. lovely, lovingly sorted into boxes. <laughs> it's all wrapped okay. up. <laughs> I thought you'd be amused by that. I enjoy that. Last runner of the night is Emmett and Drew. Uh, ah, yes. A question I had here too is, uh, Drew is still at Emmett and Debbie's house. Did he ever leave? <laughs> no, I think he's been hiding out. I think he's been locked in there trying to avoid press. 
Yeah, so he decides that he's going to come out. Uh, he doesn't quite know how yet. Uh, I wish he would have picked Emmett's Channel 5 segment and so the sports guys. I think it would have been like a good talk show, like The View moment, where Emmett is guiding Drew through the coming out process. That would have been boring, though. So he comes out during the sports cast instead. <laughs> to, to, a, to someone who was his friend. Let me just say that we've known each other for how long now? 15 years? We started out playing ball together, and I've always thought of you not only as an outstanding athlete, but as a man's man. So, why don't we put all these rumors to rest right now? First of all, I'd like to say that most of those stories are out and out lies. Total exaggerations. I'm sure that's a relief for your millions of fans. But if you're asking me if I'm gay, the answer is yes. He like pumps him up and then Drew just like, but if you're asking, I'm gay. Yeah. Yeah. Then he goes and over and tongues them. The newscaster's <laughs> face when that happened was priceless. This was kind of a, a great feel good story, but I guess some of it was a little hilarious in its staging. I wish that it didn't have such a predictable narrative because I could kind of see this coming and I could kind of see that Emmett being in in the room was going to somehow get drawn into it. That's what I wish it had just said. It, it was your queer guy who helped me out or something like that and just like left it at that. Yeah, instead of like running over there and... <laughs> yeah, to have this whole moment where the cameras are supposed to follow him going over that that was just that was an awkward staging thing well and then it just turns into kind of a comedy moment because all the other newscasters are like whoa, whoa. and they're like, yeah, so it's like you can hear a pin drop as they're making out yeah <laughs> on network tv i think telling the coming out story uh of a professional athlete uh just would have been played it, it could have played better without the made for tv theatrics I think it would have been a better effort on Brad Fraser's part if it wasn't so quick. I think having Drew do a couple stutter steps in coming out would have been better. But he showed up and he came out like he had somebody writing all of his lines for him. He didn't struggle with it. He just had the script and he kept to his script and then he went over and kissed Emmett. I think, though, the way Drew has been written and portrayed is that he's someone who very much follows his gut. And so I, it didn't ring false to me and that he was able to just cut to the chase of it all. Because mm. I think that's something we've always seen him do is he just he just said it like, he, you know, the fact that he said, I'm not gay. But then he says, like, and then he kisses Emmett and Emmett's like, well, what was that? He's like, I just wanted to. Yeah. Like, OK. <laughs> so like that, I, 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 I was able to. Yeah, he's decisive. So I was able to go along with that ride. Drew is also very hungry because when they get back home, he uh, picks up Emmett and carts him upstairs for a quick fuck like that. <laughs> I was waiting on em I was waiting on Drew to slap Emmett's butt with yeah. what he was carrying. <laughs> I wanted that. Like he was doing that to he was doing it kind of playfully to to Drew, but I was waiting on Drew to like give him one good smack. And how about Drew Boyd, played by Matt Battaglia, picks up Peter Page and carries him upstairs. <laughs> Hey, Peter Page so is probably hot. what, like 160, 170 so there? Yeah. Uh, mm. So we find out that Drew is suspended. I've been suspended. What? Why? You weren't driving drunk. You didn't rape anybody. You weren't making illegal bets. All you did was. Damn. What? We know what he did. My coach says for my own good. In case my teammates try to injure me. I thought you were supposed to look out for each other. So did I. And a couple of episodes ago, we talked about how Drew really needed to have had a broader discussion with his entourage first. Uh, guess we were right, because everything starts to get sideways for him. This was a, a good story. I'm into it. Well, and I like, I, I mean, maybe it's a small thing, but I like this point that Debbie makes that, you know, he wasn't driving drunk. He didn't rape anybody. He wasn't doing illegal betting. He just came out as to who as who he is. And so I like that she really she really nails on like how we see a lot of sports figures uh, get away with a lot. And how dare one just be gay? So let's talk about our tops and bottoms in this episode. What was your top? OK, so uh, even though we had some like quibbles, I was actually such a fan of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and for the biggest reason is because all I would say most of the right people got the right kind of talking to by the right people. <laughs> so you have Debbie, 
setting Brian straight. You have Jennifer putting Justin in his place. You have Tucker putting Justin in his place. You have Drew and Emmett, you know, having their say. It was uh, everything. And like, even the very beginning with Michael and Ben basically saying fuck off to the Proposition 14 people. Loved. I just loved all those moments. And the show was just chock full of them. My top was uh, the Drew Boyd coming out story. That could be playing out today in almost the exact same way. Uh, I, it, as many problems as I had with the the staging of it, um, I feel like the writers are getting this story mostly right. And kind of unfortunately, it's just a minor runner so far. This could have been like an A story or B story in an entire episode, but we didn't yes. have that much screen time with it. And th- that would be my only complaint with it. Mm-hmm. What was your bottom? Uh, Michael and Lindsay still being cunts. <laughs> I think that to just to borrow that phrase from Justin about the art critic, like I just felt they have both decided that because they didn't get exactly what they want or they're going to be petty, they're going to continue to be petty. Even when I think Brian makes the best version of an apology that he can make or Lindsay, like Melanie is now like moving on with her life that for Michael and Lindsay to continue to hold those grudges is just grody and we don't need it anymore. My bottom was, this was kind of a tough bottom. Um, I I just thought that the episode was way too packed. There was so much going on that the emotions would go up and down and up and down and up and down. And it was hard to transition from scene to scene because they all had different moods. And so I didn't like having this much in one episode, but I liked almost entirely everything that was in this episode. So this had more to do with the way that it was structured and how much was stuffed into it. And, and we're going to see a lot of that in the remaining four five episodes. Yeah, five episodes. Four episodes. Yeah, you're right. Four. There's a lot of wrap up that needs to happen. And so these episodes come really fast and packed and mm. not a huge amount of depth in most stories, but is what it is. I'm also not a fan of yet another straight story in a queer show, but I've been harping on that <laughs> for quite a while. <laughs> This has been episode nine of season five. Anything in common next time on still queer as folk an event at Babylon to bring more attention to proposition 14 ends in tragedy. That will be episode 10 of season five and it's called I love you. If you like what you've been hearing a five-star rating on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen to our podcasts uh, would be most helpful. And you can be sure to continue to follow uh, our conversations on all of our social medias. You can follow us uh, on Twitter and Instagram at still queer AF and on Facebook at still queers folk. Find me on Instagram at Patrick Randall. If you want to connect with me directly and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Matthew PD. Thanks for listening until next time. I'm Patrick Randall. And I'm Matt Dominguez. Still Queer's Focus, a production of Slightly Unbalanced. Matt Dominguez wrote and performed the show with me tonight. New episodes every other week for season five. Still Queer's Focus was made with love in Chicago.